For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, can poetry help us to understand our place in the cosmos? Meet the editors of the anthology Beyond Earth's Edge, the poetry of spaceflight. And I'll talk with Genevieve Anderson, the filmmaker behind Dust One, a drama about life, death, and trust on the U.S.-Mexico border. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. Astronomer Carl Sagan wrote those stirring words as the introduction to his book Cosmos in 1980. It was his way of beginning to describe the difficulty the human mind has in grasping the size and scope of our universe. Luckily, we do have some ways to help us understand these concepts. Art, especially poetry. A new book from the U of A Press uses the beauty of some of the greatest astronomical photographs ever taken and more than 80 poems to document some of the defining moments in space exploration. The book was edited by the team of Julie Swarstead Johnson, a library specialist at the UA Poetry Center, and Christopher Kokinos, a professor of English and a nature and science writer. Together, they share a love of writing and reading poetry and a lifetime fascination with the final frontier. In thinking about selecting works to include in this book, and we really wanted to capture a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different moments from throughout the history, um, but also a lot of different viewpoints in terms of diversity of gender and race and all kinds of other identities of what people do, um, whether they're professors or whether they're working in different areas. And diverse also in the sense of many of these writers are, are very enthusiastic about spaceflight and others have some real doubts about it. Um, and I think for me especially, um, for both of us, there was just a sense of needing to grapple with the complexity of this rather than it just being kind of a, an advertisement for spaceflight. Um, we wanted to think about the complexity of it and offer people a really nuanced view. When you refer to the complexities involved in this issue, Julie, I'm reminded of the fact that as a child, I was so pro-science fiction and so pro-spaceflight that when I heard somebody like George Lazenby, who was you know, one of the actors who played James Bond, who came out and said, there's absolutely no sense in spending one penny on leaving this planet until we've solved our own problems. And I thought, oh, mister, you're wrong. And then I heard his comments again 20, 30 years later, and... I found wisdom in them, and I thought, yeah, that does make sense. Maybe we shouldn't be taking our show on the road. And so I've seen that in my own lifetime, going from a very space-above-all-else point of view to a much more conservative standpoint of saying, we need to spend money here on Earth. We need to fix our problems. But at the same time, scientific opportunities like what the work that's been done on the International Space Station, for instance, are key to us moving ahead. So, Chris, how do you balance the necessity for taking care of our own garden here on Earth, 
before we think about going outside? It's been a perennial question, um, and it's an important one. Since the, the beginning of the space age and the first commitment in, you know, 1961, when Kennedy says, well, we're going to go to the moon. And if you listen to the secret audio recordings in the White House, he, he says, essentially, I don't really care that much about space. You know, this is about beating the Soviets. And we did. Then Apollo ended and, you know, things were adrift for, for quite a while. So it suggests that there isn't necessarily um, muscle in us that says we absolutely have to do this. But there are a lot of people who think that we do. And, and, and like you, I'm, I'm of two minds, but I, I think the way to reconcile this is to understand that going to space is not abandoning Earth. Um, I think you'll find some people in the space community who would gladly just, you know, move on to, to planet B. Uh, planet B isn't ready yet, and planet A needs some attention. And space actually can help us understand that. If there is an either or here, I, I think it's between the amount of money we spend on defense budgets globally uh, versus everything else. The amount of money that NASA takes up in the federal budget is less than 1%. Uh, so it's 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 not a tremendous amount of, of money um, federally and even globally. Um, so I, I come back to um, a poem at the end of Beyond Earth's Edge by the African-American feminist writer Nikki Giovanni. Uh, and she writes in her poem, Quilting the Black-Eyed Pea, and the subtitle of that poem is We're Going to Mars. Um, she says, uh, we're going to Mars because whatever is wrong with us will not get right with us. So we journey forth, carrying the same baggage, but every now and then leaving one little bitty thing behind. So that aspirational sense of, of exploration of space being a form of self-education, I think, is really important. And it is a form of stewardship. We, we wouldn't know what we know about the climate and Earth systems without, without having gone to space. So it was great to hear Chris quote from one of the poems in the book. But Julia, I'd like to ask you if there's a selection that you'd like to read for us now. I will read um, Adrian Rich's poem, Hubble Photographs, after Sappho. The reason this poem comes to mind is it's very much a poem about looking. Um, Adrian Rich is one of my favorite writers. She's another feminist thinker, um, incredibly important American poet who in this poem is thinking about looking and the kind of looking that we're able to do because the Hubble Space Telescope, those vast distances we can see and how that kind of compares to the intimacy of life here on Earth between humans. And it puts it in an interesting perspective. So this is Hubble Photograph after Sappho by Adrian Rich. It should be the most desired sight of all, the person with whom you hope to live and die, walking into a room, turning to look at you, sight for sight, should be. Yet I say there is something more desirable. The ecstasis of galaxies, so out from us, there's no vocabulary but mathematics and optics, equations letting sight pierce through time into liberation, lacerations of light and dust, exposed like a body's cavity, violet, green, livid and venous, Gorgeous beyond good and evil, as ever stained into dream. Beyond remorse, disillusion, fear of death or life, rage for order, rage for destruction. Beyond this love which stirs the air every time she walks into the room. 
Ethan Personi, however we call them, won't invade us as on movie screens. They are so old, so new. We are not to them. We look at them or don't from within the milky gauze of our tilted gazing, but they don't look back and we cannot hurt them. I think some people on the surface, Julie, might think that science and poetry are on opposite ends of the spectrum. What did you come away from this experience with in terms of your perspective on how art and science blend? It's a good question, and I think it's one that's come up in a lot of the conversations we've had about this book after it's been published. We're looking at the way that poetry adds to our understanding of science. And I think at one, one event we did, someone online asked, what does art add to science? And it was one of those moments where I felt like I should have this really straightforward answer. Um, but one of the things I really love about poetry and have always loved, and one of the reasons that I, I come to it as my own art form or the, the own form for my own work, um, is that poetry deals so well with ambiguity. It deals really well with multiple things held together at once. And I think that that's something that if we think about poetry and what it can add to our understanding of science. Science is also really good at thinking about really complex issues, being willing to ask questions and then kind of change course if things don't turn out the way we think they will. Um, but I think with both of those, they can teach each other about nuance and about looking at things from multiple directions. I once interviewed the late Gene Kelly's wife. Now, Gene Kelly as you remember, and many people in our audience remember, was a dancer, director, choreographer, uh, an artist. And he was, according to his wife, who was also his biographer, he was miserable the day of the moon landing. (laughs) Because the moon was now a place. It wasn't a romantic icon. It wasn't an image of of love and hope and dreams. It was a place. And it made him feel like dirt. (laughs) (laughs) And I've always thought that story was hysterical. And I found something similar in a poem included in your book by Allen Ginsberg called Poem Rocket. And he talks about old moon, my eyes are new moon with human footprint, no longer Romeo sad face and drunken river, loony Pierre eyebrow, goof moon. (laughs) (laughs) And this really cracked me up, and I thought that that was a funny take. So, Chris, I want you to tell me uh, something about some of the unexpected points of view that you found in doing this book, things that surprised you that people wanted to articulate about how they felt about space. Well, you sort of put your finger on the thing that surprised me most, which was the the sort of depth of almost anger. (laughs) Really, W.H. Auden has a poem in, in the anthology as well. It's He's just kind of ticked off that we landed on the moon, and and there were several poets uh, sampled in that in that era. But in retrospect, it should surprise us. This is the height of the civil rights movement, uh, the Vietnam War. Um, it's a sort of expansive distrust, especially um, among liberals and on on the left. Uh, this expansive distrust of of government and and spending a NASA civilian agency, and yet, of course, you know, the first astronauts are are uh, fighter pilots and test pilots and so forth. And so, yeah, there was this sense of the moon being sullied as a symbol, but then the trajectory changes as we get farther from the Apollo program, closer to whatever the next steps are, literally next steps are on the moon. 
a sense of openness and curiosity, a kind of appreciation for the human side of the of the effort to go to the moon. And just speaking personally, I mean, I, I think the moon remains, you know, a beautiful icon for all sorts of cultures still. And it's no surprise that the Chinese named their pro Chang'e after the Chinese lunar goddess. So I think it still has that that symbolic import that still matters in, in various cultures and religions and in Islam and, and so on. You know, so I'm sorry for Gene Kelly, but I think that actually the fact that it is a place and that as a place it has its own grandeur, its mm-hmm. own sense of mystery that science can help unlock and is unlocking. We've discovered water on the moon. This is an amazing thing. You know, my my predisposition is to to see the wonder in that. Yeah, I think in that story there's this false dichotomy between the places where humans are and wilderness or kind of things beyond us. Um, and I think maybe part of what some of, in this newer time where people are thinking about this differently, not everybody, but um, some people, I think we're realizing that that's not true. Or I, I at least would believe that, that there is myth and mystery in the places that we live um, as much as there are in these untouched places. Those things don't need to be pitted against each other. So the moon as a place where we can go can still be a place of wonder and mystery and a symbol. While we've been talking, my finger's been on page 64 in the poem Apollo by Elizabeth Alexander. She says, because the men are walking on the moon, which is now irrefutably not green, not cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, Chris, in order to explore these places we're talking about, though, these extreme points of beauty and excitement and danger and possibility, we are separating ourselves somewhat from the environment. And I think there's a couple of poems in the collection that refer to this idea of the sort of distancing and the need to recalibrate the human perspective. Yeah, indeed. And, and I think that, uh, you know, we've been talking a a lot about the moon. The, the the book covers the whole span, space shuttle poems, robotic explorers. I think, yeah, you're right. Implicit in all of this is the the fact that we're you know baggy water creatures um, on a on this planet on a on a rocky planet, and you know we're, we have not evolved to be out there, and so we have to we have to suit up um, or use instruments to bring the cosmos closer. This poem by Robert Hayden is called Astronauts, um, and Robert Hayden may be best known for his uh, his poem Middle Passage about the slave trade. Um, but I love this poem, Astronauts, and it, it gives us a poet's description of what he thinks that experience is like. So it goes like this. Armored in oxygen, faceless in visors, mirror masks reflecting the mineral glare and shadow of moonscape. They walk slow motion, floatingly the lifeless dust of Taurus Litro. Wow, they exclaim, oh boy, this is it. They sing, exulting, though trained to be wary of emotion and philosophy, breaking the calcined stillness of once absolute other wear, risking edges, earthlings to whom only their machines are friendly and God's radar watching eye. They labor at gathering proof of hypothesis in snowshine of sunlight, dangerous as radium, probe detritus for clues. What is it we wish them to find for us as we watch them on our screens? They loom there, heroic anti-heroes, smaller than myth, 
and poignantly human. Why are we troubled? What do we ask of these men? What do we ask of ourselves? I talked with Christopher Kokinos and Julie Swarstead Johnson. Together they edited the anthology At the Earth's Edge, The Poetry of Spaceflight, available now from the University of Arizona Press. Show respect. He served in Afghanistan. He was dust one. A dust one? I thought you were military. Army. I know what a dust one is. Duty status, whereabouts unknown. Okay, well, Kenny disappeared. His disappearance were never resolved, and he was denied his benefits and dishonorably discharged. Mm. Sounds like Kenny got what he deserved. All I know is he's still flying the flag trying to be a good American. We leave him alone. The independent movie Dust One doesn't offer answers to the debate about migration across the U.S.-Mexico border. But with its small cast of four characters, it does reveal the complexity of the situation. Filmmaker Genevieve Anderson, a former resident of Tubac, has a strong eye for detail. And in collaboration with cinematographer Tomas Arceo, they've created a cinematic version of the Borderlands that is both familiar and dreamlike. Dust One is one of many current films that have had their chances for a theatrical exhibition cut short, but it is slated to premiere as part of the Arizona International Film Festival in April of this year. Also, video on demand distribution through House of Film will make it possible for viewers to see what this film has to say. It came from living there for four years and having a stepbrother in Border Patrol and having um, a very dear friend who's a staunch conservative and, you know, working with the Samaritans, some having migrants cross through my backyard, having my own encounters, realizing like this is a lot more complex than anybody really knows. So for me, in a way, it was important to bracket the drama, if that makes any sense, which is why the film is, is sort of theatrical and um, operates a lot like a play and that this is a make-believe environment with characters that are outlines more than they are fully fleshed characters. So the two central characters, Marta and Kenny, it was really important that all of this other stuff exist around them and that the, the center of it really be the simplicity of one person being kind to another. When you talk about this side and that side, there's an interesting device that's used in the film, and it, I think it goes back to what you said about it being somewhat like a play, and that is the wall that uh, Kenny has built. It's a section of wall, maybe 30 feet or so from end to end, and it acts as a demarcation point in the play for inside and outside, even though everything is outside. And it's really funny how Kenny, when he goes through the door, it's like he's home. You know, he assumes this body language of like, ah, I'm here in my house now. But he's all he's done is walk through the sort of ramshackle, rusted out door in the middle of his wall. Tell me a little about the physicality of building Kenny's camp, which is the central location for the film. 
the genesis of it was really um, my friend, uh, Shay Lopez, whose family has lived in that area for like 40 years, and they run a landscaping business. And all of those, the, the materials that his wall was built from um, are already on the property. I knew that I wanted to make a movie about what was happening in Southern Arizona. And Kenny is someone I actually worked with like 25 years ago at the Los Angeles Mental Health Association. So he's a real person. He wasn't a veteran, but everything that he says and the whole character is based on someone real. But the wall itself, I felt like I loved this idea of someone being like being kicked out of being a service person. And I should being mention- Being kicked that, out of society in a lot of Kicked out of society, which is, so he's in exile and Marta's in exile. And they both share the designation, duty, status, whereabouts, unknown. Nobody knows where they are. Nobody knows what they are up to. And Kenny doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing, even though he wants to serve because he hears the panicked voices on the radio saying, gotta build a wall, gotta build a wall. So he builds a wall, but he builds it through, it's like through the eyes of a child or through the eyes of a madman. And I feel like they- at least in my work with people who suffer from mental illness, they tend to synthesize the bigger themes in life, good and evil, light and dark, in ways that are so compelling. And so I liked this wall as an idea of he takes it totally seriously, but the wall's absurd. Another thing that clouds the debate over undocumented migration is the motives. In this film, you've given Marta a very specific motivation. Um, but I think it highlights the fact that she's not acting out of a self-interest or a greed or an idea that she can get to the United States and then take it easy and take advantage of our social systems and so forth to the extent that she can while being undocumented. Instead, she has an entirely emotional and personal reason for making the journey. Which is so many people. And that's that's an important thing. Again, there's no solving this overnight, but when certain unnamed individuals in government clump everybody into one group. Like they're all this and they're stealing your job and they're raping your children and they're bringing drugs over and they're animals and this and that. It's like, whoa, 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 people, please. There are many stories. They're human beings. And many of them have histories that far, you know, precede this weird borderline called the United States and Mexico. They forget that. And, and I have encountered people. I encountered a migrant working with the Samaritans who had come over four times and he was lost from his group. He had sold his house, you know, and he needed to get to a family member um, who needed him. And he was lost and he came, to, he chose to come to us. And I had asked him in Spanish, like, how did you know that we weren't going to turn you in? And he said, I asked God. And I was, I was floored, A, by, by his tenacity, by, you know, how, how many of us would do that, sell our house and walk across the desert Nobody's doing that because they think it's fun or because it's going to be better. Or maybe it's better over there. They do so because they have to. When I first met you, it was because we were shooting a television piece about a project you were doing, and it was a film that was made on a sort of micro scale starring very small puppets. This film is completely rooted in the real physical world with real human actors. What's the contrast there? What did you find about doing this production that you maybe found freeing or actually perhaps limiting in the capacity that you might have if you were shooting it with puppets? I love working with puppets. And I, I think, you know, you know, I work with puppets, not because I like puppets, but because puppets are uh, a way of uh, channeling um, a higher way of seeing, you know, the puppet is something that it's symbolic, again, of, of the life force. And I think we receive story in a more acute way when we're looking at the puppet figure. And I found in doing this, I didn't really know until halfway through, I'm like, oh, I'm doing the same thing that I do with puppets, which is that 
again, it's, it's a set and, and, and characters who I felt like I was bringing together, not unlike with the puppets, in an, almost in an improvisational way to this, this place to perform a play about compassion. So I saw myself working with actors in the same way I tend to work with puppets. And I found that I really liked actors. I actually can't wait to work with actors again. These were really wonderful people and loved working with them. I just found myself working with them in a similar way than I do with the puppets, which is that I want the audience to see this story and not to get too wrapped up in people or their particulars or their backstories or their wardrobe. It's like everything needed to be very deliberate and formal so that the story could come through in a more fluid way. That was my intention. There was an experience I had when I saw Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen for the first time when I was a kid, and that was that I got incredibly thirsty. And I had a kind of a similar reaction during Dust One, and it made me think that, you know, for every minute that we spend with the characters out under the sun and and in that terrain, you were out there for hours or days. So do you feel like you learned any lessons from shooting in that terrain about what it represents and the effect that terrain has on those who must cross through it? Well, I opted to shoot it in August during monsoon season precisely because I wanted to capture the desert at at its most dangerous, I suppose, because you've got not just the heat, but you've got the threat of lightning and and the flooding and all of this stuff. So it was absolutely deliberate decision to do it so that the energy of that would be in the film. And and we did have, I yeah, was almost um, struck by lightning about 10 days before we started shooting. And I actually have it on film because I was out shooting bugs <laughs> in my front yard in, in Tubac. And the lightning bolt hit the tree right next to me. And anyway, my son flew back and hit his head and he thought he was hit and the tree was on fire. It was really dramatic. So I felt like Mother Nature was like, OK, don't don't mess around because this is really serious, you know, and people could get hurt. So please be careful. I tried to hire as many people as I could from Tucson. I had this wonderful Tucson crew and they they all know how to deal with the heat. It was the people who came from L.A. <laughs> that were like, it's hot. <laughs> yes, it's hot. <laughs> yes, this is Arizona in the desert. I need you to understand that a lot of people want to get into this country illegally and it's our job, my job and yours, to protect our border and to send these people back where they came from. Yes, ma'am, all the bad people. You gotta keep them out and no, I'll send them back. No, Kenny, not just the bad people, all undocumented people. Do you understand? It's our job. It's not because they're bad. It's just our job, plain and simple. My guest was filmmaker Genevieve Anderson, the writer and director of Dust One. You can watch the trailer on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org and find out how to see the film online by visiting Dust One, that's D-U-S-T-W-U-N, dustonemovie.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.